0: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke.
1: Real love is calling, opens up your eyes. Mercy is with every sunrise. They don't even provide what they are offering. It comes from a little kid in the crowd. So they don't even have five loaves and two fish. They get it from a little boy, but that's what they present to Jesus. And they are still of the mindset that this is not enough. This is why I find it curious. They just got back a few verses ago from going around preaching the gospel and healing the sick with the power dunamis of the spirit and exousia, authority of Jesus. And they don't have enough after you've done all that. How
0: quickly we can forget God's power. It may be easy today to shake your head at the actions and disbelief of the disciples today, but if you think about it, you can probably relate, can't you? You have an incredible encounter with God, but a few days later, circumstances change, and you wonder if he can still be that powerful. Well, today, Pastor Gary will challenge you to remember all the good God has done in your life, all of it. When you have those moments of doubt, turn to God. He won't have changed. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 9 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: So Luke 9 is where we're going to be tonight, and I encourage you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Let's just jump right in verse one. It says when Jesus had called the 12 together, those are his apostles, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to notice this, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag. No bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So this is a little bit of on-the-job training. I mean, Jesus wants to prepare these guys. After all, they are going to be the seedbed of the church. I mean, these disciples, his 12, the apostles, are going to be the ones from whom the whole church grows. Because when Jesus, just before he ascends into heaven, after his crucifixion and burial and resurrection, then he's going to ascend into heaven. And before he does, he's going to hand the mantle of ministry. He's going to kind of hand the baton off to these guys. You are going to perpetuate in how the ministry, you're going to be the early church, and from them comes the church. And so we are here today as a result of the faithfulness of these 12, at least 11 of them, you know, not counting Judas, and I suppose adding back in Paul. But anyway, they become the foundation here of the early church, and Jesus is going to give them a little on-the-job training. So he empowers them. It says that he gives them power and authority. Those words are dunamis and exousia in the Greek. He's going to give them the power of the Spirit to perform miracles, and he's going to give them authority, exousia, to proclaim the gospel, and they're going to go under the power, dunamis, we get our English word dynamite from that Greek word, and the authority of Christ to do two things primarily, and it is in this order, preach the gospel and heal the sick. Preach the gospel and heal the sick. And he says it in that order in verse 2, And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then it's repeated in verse 6. So they sent out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Uh, you know, I do believe still that the power of the Holy Spirit is present today uh, with signs following, with gifts, that God is still empowering people through His Spirit in accordance with and in step with the manual, which is God's Word. But listen, it is always those things following. It is not those things preceding. It was not heal people and then give them the gospel. It was give them the Word of God first and then minister to their physical needs. The most important thing is the spiritual need of an individual. You can't shortchange the eternal significance of the soul by simply addressing felt needs or physical needs. So it is always gospel first, and then heal secondly. And he empowers them in this way, and they go from village to village and town to town, and they're getting a glimpse of what it's going to be like even after Jesus leaves. This is how the early church is to function. And as they go from village to village, Jesus warns them, there's going to be some people who like you and they welcome you. You're going to come into their house. You're going to find lodging with them. He says, don't take anything for the trip. No tunic, no bag, no food, no nothing, no staff, nothing. Why? Because he wants us to always be completely dependent upon him. I mean, that's just a good general Bible principle, always to be dependent upon the Lord Jesus. And so he's teaching them, be completely dependent upon me. Don't take anything for your needs. I'm going to meet all your needs. Be dependent upon me. And then when you go from house to house, and it would be typical Jewish style, welcoming, hospitable, not so much, you know, westernized America. Okay, we we like to keep our bubble particularly, and we don't want people coming into our house unless you're really good friends with them. But in these days, you don't even know a person, they're a stranger, they come into town. There's no Holiday Inn. You invite them into your house. You had no idea sometimes what you're getting and what some of these people were getting were disciples of Christ on fire with the gospel and they would share the gospel, the good news about Jesus and some would receive it and others would be all mad and angry and wouldn't receive it at all. Jesus says the ones who receive it, let your peace stay with those homes. The ones who have rejected it, they don't receive it. You leave their home, you leave the town, you even dust your shoes off. Don't take anything of them with you. That's what he's telling them to do. Now, there's a general principle, I think, in this. Listen, we need to be sensitive to God's spirit to go where God tells us to go. And I don't mean that in a, in a grand missional concept, although it can be that. You know, maybe God's calling you into some foreign country. But go where God wants you to go if it's walking across the hall to your coworker's office. Okay? It's that kind of reality. Go where Jesus tells you to go. Say what Jesus tells you to say, and if somebody is not receptive to what you have to say, then leave them alone. Trust God that he's going to get to them through somebody else, but it just may not be you. So go where God tells you to go, say what God tells you to say, and just leave people alone who are not receptive to you. But we all still have to be these vessels that God would speak through and and share our love for Christ and our faith with other people, so... Off they go. And they're going to come back in a few verses here, and they're going to report to Jesus what happened. But in verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch, this is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. Okay, Herod the Great was the one who gave the order around the time of the birth of Jesus for all the baby boys to be killed. That's this guy's dad. Now this is Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. He's murderous too, because he's the one that has John the Baptist killed. Okay, so it says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John, who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So there's this stir going on in the community at this time. You know, Jesus is going around preaching, teaching, healing, raising the dead, doing all of this. His disciples are empowered with power and authority to preach the gospel, heal the sick. And Herod Antipas hears all this. He's getting all stirred up because he thought he put to rest all of this crazy religious stuff when he had John the Baptist killed. He's like, I had John the Baptist beheaded. Is this John the Baptist come back to life? Is this Elijah? So he's wondering about Jesus. And it says that he... Tried to see him. Now, don't mistake Herod's motives here. He's not this real curious seeker that, you know, I, I want to learn more. It's not that kind of a guy. He wants to see Jesus out of a curiosity that is really rooted in evil. Because it'll tell us in a few chapters later, in fact, it's Luke 13, 31 that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Herod was constantly threatened. That's why he had John the Baptist killed. He was threatened by anybody who would uh, in any way make him feel like that his kingdom was being undermined or he was being upstaged by somebody else. John the Baptist is in his grill because Herod is living in sin. Jesus is becoming very popular, and Herod is concerned that somebody's becoming more popular than he is. So he's very paranoid, very, very similar, kind of a Saul and David thing where, you know, Saul becomes increasingly jealous and angry and paranoid. And that was the dynasty of the Herods. They had a history of being paranoid, insecure. They'd kill people if they felt the threat. Uh, one of the ancient historians wrote about Herod the Great that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than a family member because Herod the Great had more of his family members killed than he did his own pigs. That's just the way he was. He was insecure, and his son is no different. So Herod is confused here and concerned. And so read on verse 10. When the apostles returned, meaning returning from this time of being sent out, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. There's the order again. Gave them the gospel, the kingdom of God, then healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. And they answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all the crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Okay, so here we have the feeding of the 5,000, otherwise known as really the feeding of probably 10 or 15,000. Because again here, Luke tells us in verse 14 that it was about 5,000 men. And as we've talked about in previous studies of this story, they only typically counted men in the day. So when you add women and children, it's probably a miracle of 10 or 15,000 people who were fed. This is the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it is probably, for that reason, the most uh, noteworthy of his miracles, perhaps. And it tells us that after the apostles returned from being sent out earlier with, with power and authority to preach the gospel and heal, they come back, they report to Jesus, and what is the first thing that he does here? It says that he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Ministry in general can drain you, and there's this important necessity of getting alone and getting recharged and getting refilled. Well, Jesus is like, okay, you guys have spent yourselves, you're on empty, let's go away and let's, let's retreat, recharge, and get refilled here. And they go to a place called Bethsaida. Now, remember, as we look at the territory of the Sea of Galilee, that Bethsaida is one of the three major towns from which Jesus ministered the most, Capernaum here is his home base. It's on the north, slightly northwestern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he spends most of his time. That's the home base of his ministry. But the Bible says that between these three towns, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, it's basically a two-square-mile area. This triangular area is where Jesus performed more miracles than any other place on the face of the earth. The most concentrated display of his miracles and his preaching and his ministry happened right there in this two-square-mile radius, and they all rejected him. And for that reason, remember, Jesus uttered a curse against these three towns, that woe is you, Capernaum, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, because he performed all these miracles and preached who he was, and they rejected him. And he pronounced judgment upon them, and he said, it'll be better for those of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. And you go today, and those three towns are just ruins. You can go look at remains. You can go look at archaeological digs and ancient structures. But they are towns that are empty, and they are just that. They are archaeological tourist spots. So we don't stay there when we go to Israel. We stay further down on the coast in Tiberias. Uh, but those three cities not. Now, so what we're talking about is Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Hebrew translates house of Fish. It was a fishing village. It it was more likely in the day of Jesus that this was a coastal town. The Sea of Galilee now has kind of uh, withdrawn and receded a bit. So Bethsaida is not on the Sea of Galilee today, but it was believed in Jesus' day that it was uh, because it's called a, a house of fish. It was a fishing village located there on the Sea of Galilee. It was uh, the place that Peter and Andrew and Philip were from. So three of his disciples, this is their hometown. So they go back there, and Jesus is going to retreat with them, have a little R&R. But it says in verse 11, that the crowds learned about it. Got all the paparazzi getting the word out. You know, they're tweeting, hey, we just saw Jesus. You know, meet us at Bethsaida. And so, you know, everybody starts showing up. It hits social media. I mean, can you imagine how crazy it would have been in the day if they had social media like that? Jesus would have not had peace at all. But here they are, trying to get away, and all the crowds come. And Jesus is gracious. He, he doesn't, you know, refuse them. What does he do? He welcomed them, it says in verse 11. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. So, you know, ongoing ministry. But now look, so it's late in the day, and his disciples are calculating, listen, a lot of people here, thousands of people. It's late in the day. They're going to get hungry. It's a remote place. And what do they do? They go to Jesus, and they encourage him, you need to send these people away. They need to get some food here. There's nothing. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's nothing here. You need to send the people away. Now, this is kind of curious to me. Why? Because Jesus then, when he responds and he says, well, you give them something to eat. You feed them. And they're like, we don't really have anything. And Luke's gospel tells us that they have five loaves of bread and two fish. But John's gospel tells us that they stole it from a little boy. Yeah, John's Gospel says that a little boy, it was a little boy's lunch, and Andrew took the lunch and gave it to Jesus. Now, I don't know if the boy gave it willingly or not. What was his disposition? You know, I don't know. Hey, that's my lunch. I don't know. But they don't even provide what they are offering. It comes from a little kid in the crowd. So they don't even have five loaves and two fish. They get it from a little boy. But that's what they present to Jesus. And they are still of the mindset that this is not enough. This is why I find it curious. They just got back a few verses ago from going around preaching the gospel and healing the sick with the power dunamis of the spirit and exousia, authority of Jesus, and they don't have enough after you've done all that. Can you imagine if you had spent, I don't know how long, a few days, a couple of weeks, going around preaching the gospel, and every person you prayed for and laid hands on, you make your way through Loudon Hospital... And every person you pray for, they're getting up out of their beds. They're getting up out of their beds. And you're just like, man, Jesus is incredible. He's working through me in an incredible way. And then just like the next day, you're like, "All oh, we have is five loaves and, and two fish. We can't do a single thing. Seriously? Do you have any concept of what just happened through you? And now you're going to question? We, don't, we, don't, we had to steal a kid's lunch because we don't have dinner for these people? So there's a disconnect here with the disciples. And I think to myself, how often is a similar disconnect in my own heart and life when the Lord does something wonderful and I can turn around the next minute and not believe him for something less. And so here they are. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing for them. You better send them away. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. There's an application here. There's a principle here. Listen, when you see the need, respond indeed. That's what he's saying to us. How many people seem to have the ministry of somebody else? You ever notice those Christians? They like they see a need and they're experts at thinking somebody else should do it. If you see the need, respond indeed. Maybe you've seen the need because God wants to use you to respond to the need. Don't hand it off to somebody else. The disciples were like trying to hand it off to Jesus. We see the need, but somebody else needs to do it. How about you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, how about you? You're the one that saw it. How about you do something? I only have five loaves of bread and a couple of fish here. That'll be fine because a little bit with Jesus is more than enough. Now, Luke tells us, and different from the other Gospels, doesn't change the story at all, but Luke is just specific here about how Jesus said to them, have everybody sit down in groups of 50. He wants this to be a manageable distribution here. And the Lord just prays over what is there And this is a miraculous reproduction of bread and fish. And, you know, Hollywood has tried to portray this so that we can get an idea what this looks like. If you've ever seen any, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or, you know, any of those classic movies or films about this and as people are you know digging in the basket it just it just is an endless supply i remember many years ago when we first started the church and we probably had only maybe 200 people and we were having our church picnic back in the day before we had our property down the road we had our church picnic down in sterling at a park And I remember, it was back in the day when I I was doing everything, right? So I went and got burgers. I bought the burgers. I bought the charcoal, and I got everything. I hauled it to Algonquian, and and more people showed up than I had thought. And, you know, and and I had some guys there helping me from the church, and we're flipping the burgers, and I'm looking at the line, and I'm looking at the burgers that are left, and I'm like, there's no way. And one guy in the church, his name was Carl. Carl said, you know what? We just need to pray. God's going to multiply these burgers. And I remember thinking to myself, Get real. Come on, you know, isn't that terrible? I'm the pastor, and I'm thinking inside of my head, get real. Come on. But Carl, was just the faith of a little kid, he's just like, I'm just going to keep flipping these burgers, and God's going to multiply them. And he'd flip the burgers, and he'd take them over to a pan where people then would, you know, dig out of the pan the hamburgers that they wanted, and then he'd come back and throw more burgers on and that line kept going through it. I kept going back to the pan, and the pan just never got lower and lower. I kept coming back and going back and forth and thinking, any minute now that pan's going to be empty. I've got to bring a pan back for Carl to flip some more burgers. And every time I go back for the pan, there'd still be burgers in it. I'd see it go down a little bit, but not in proportion to what it looked like to my eyes, the line was. And at the end of the day, I'm just like, wow, wow, Jesus multiplied the burgers. <laughs> and Carl looked at me and he said, I think I've been saying that all day long, pastor. (laughs) But anyway, this is, you know, this is an incredible thing here. You know, it's great when somebody in the church preaches to the pastor. That's always very uplifting, but I needed to hear it. So, you know, here's this miracle going on here. Now, we leave this scene, and in verse 18, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us they're going to go to Caesarea Philippi, which is up north past Golan Heights in Israel. It's about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And they're going to come to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It was named after Augustus Caesar in conjunction with Philip. So he kind of made both of their names together, Augustus Philip Uh, Caesarea Philippi, and they come to this scene here where Jesus is going to ask them. Well, look at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's cautioning them, don't go around talking about this right now. My crucifixion is imminent. That's the language he's talking about here. Son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, going to be crucified. He's giving them the picture of the crucifixion. It's not registering with them, but what he's telling them is, in essence, I'm on a divine timetable. And I want you to rush this, and I want you to, so don't go around proclaiming this just yet. There's going to be a time I'm going to be crucified. Now, he's going to repeat it in the same chapter, because they don't comprehend this at the moment. But this is this great scene here in Caesarea Philippi. Today, it's called um, Banyas. In the second century, the Greeks named it Panias, with a P, after the Greek god Pan. Pan was kind of that You know, if you ever had Greek mythology in school growing up, it's kind of that weird guy who was half goat and half man. And he was like God of the fields and God of like music. And he always was playing a flute. And, you know, it was a kind of strange creature, right? You know, he looked kind of like the head of a man with like goat ears. And then at his torso, it turned into a goat, you know, goat man. It's just a really weird looking thing. But the Greeks set up this town as a place of worship to the god Pan.
0: Find the, your connection, run towards your new life. the gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ, from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him. Yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer.com at cornerstonechapel.net That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship Bible study and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel Find out service times and more information when you visit our website cornerstoneconnection.cc You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary And be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.
1: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know.